I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Preserving Indigenous Languages, featuring Daniel James, Samia Khatun, Patrick Nunn and Tara June Winch in conversation with Adam Shoemaker, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Welcome to all of you. This is a very special session I've been looking forward to for many months. It is the case that we have talent from across the world and across the country, and we're talking very much about this theme of preserving Indigenous languages, not just in the backyard, not just in the front yard, but in the world as well, and how that, in the case of Indigenous culture, is very often at one and the same time a crucial consideration. So I'd like to acknowledge the Arakwal people, as we've heard in Delta K's wonderful words, it is the case that at Southern Cross, I'm going to use the word Southern Cross University, not SCU. There's a good reason. We have a wonderful panelist from the University of the Sunshine Coast. And those initials get very confusing. USC, SCU, ACU, etc. So I often get emails for the Vice Chancellor of Sunshine Coast by mistake. So we're going to clearly talk about places and where they come from. So on the panel today, we have Daniel James. I'm going to introduce people first in the more broad sense, and then we'll have a fantastic discussion about the theme. So Daniel is a Yorta Yorta Melbourne writer. He is the 2018 winner of the Horn Prize for his amazing essay, 10 More Days. Now, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's in the wonderful Saturday paper. And Daniel's piece is, for me, not only evocative, not only pointed, not only inherently political, but transformative. It's a piece about naming and claiming and family. In two words, read it. Dr. Samia Khatun is not only a writer, a filmmaker, a cultural historian, a fabulous colleague, and someone whose documentaries are screened on both of the public channels, SBS and ABC television in this country. She was born in Dhaka, educated in Sydney, has a PhD in history from the University of Sydney, and gosh, it's like a writer's festival history, has had fellowships in, in her own right in Berlin, Dunedin, New York, and Melbourne. Here we are. And today, she's, I'm announcing quite my, very much in, with a sense of excitement, she's recently been appointed as a senior lecturer in the Center for Gender Studies at the School for, of Oriental and Oriental and Asian Studies at the University of London. But most importantly, here it is. This is, this is the book. This is the book. It is a book, Astrenama, and yes, the South Asian Odyssey in Astrea, Samia Katun's book, is the feature of our discussion today. It's a total privilege to be hearing from her today. Fantastic. Can we just applaud the first two speakers? Thank you. <clears throat> you here? Patrick Nunn, I've read it to you before, is a geologist by profession. Patrick is a professor at the University of the Sunshine Coast, as I said, but has decades of experience in other places, and that's the short form. But the interesting line for me is this. 25 years Patrick spent as a professor of oceanic geoscience in Fiji at the University of the South Pacific. In terms of languages, he speaks Fijian fluently and is a world expert on sea level rises and the risks to oceanic island states therefrom. Language plays a huge role in preservation of culture. We're going to hear all about it. So it's fantastic to have Patrick with us as well. And finally, Tara June Winch. Tara, you would know some of you who were present at the panel yesterday afternoon at 4 o'clock and other things here. 
was not only named one of Sydney Morning Herald's best young novelists, but her awards, extremely numerous, I must say, including being mentored by Wole Soyinka, which is an incredible honor. I think it's fabulous. But her indigenous documentary, Kariberi, is currently touring internationally and screened at the 71st Cannes Film Festival. And yes, it did, it did and it does. Did I tell you this was amazing, amazing panel and hasn't even really begun, so I'll stop. But her novel, The Yield, which is actually most recent, published worldwide earlier this year, redefines presence, absence, ownership, stealth by language, and the space in between things. And I strongly recommend you read every word of it at least twice. Okay? <laughs> so, colleagues, here we are. It's amazing to have you here. So, could I just ask, given where we are, and we might start, start if I could, with Samia, if it's okay with you, Given all the movements and migration, you've just literally come back from, you know, your original country just in the last 48 hours. And just as you were planning and thinking about this spaces in between here and there, what did you imagine preserving indigenous languages would be about today, you know, as, as you were anticipating this session? This is something here we are to talk about, language and movement and place. Where do you come in? What's your attitude towards that importance? Okay. Uh, so I guess I always think of it um, in terms of enlivening languages. Um, it's a delight to have Byron Bay and this particular festival be my entry point back into Australia. I literally landed yesterday morning. And this morning as I was thinking, okay, we're going to be talking about languages. What am I going to do? And so I thought I'd put on my black and white sari because... The, so I'm, I was born in Bangladesh and it's one of those places that has a very long history of organising for language rights. Uh, the country came into existence through a really big language movement and my own family was very crucial to that in sort of get, hitting the streets for the purposes of saying that Bengali should be a language that is... Um, not wiped out by the Pakistani state. That's sort of the history that I come from. Very, very, very long history of language activism. And so for them, us, the black and white saris are often the sign of, okay, we're doing language activism. So I thought I would bring some of that <laughs> into uh, the Byron Bay uh, Writers' Festival. And it's just always, always so exciting to have those kinds of conversations with in the Australian context, because it always then becomes about Aboriginal languages, you can't be talking about yep. preserving languages or enlivening languages on this country, on this soil, without looking at precisely who who is most in need of who who is who is actually the vibrant sort of backbone mm -hmm. of the stories here, and that's of course Aboriginal people. So yep. yeah, I love the term vibrant backbone. That's something we should all be thinking. It's like the chiropractics of language writ large, you know? And this is the healing wellness capital of the nation. It all makes sense, does it not, colleagues? Now, if I could go to you, uh, Daniel, this essay, the word essay doesn't really do justice to it. I think it's called an essay, but it's very personal and meditative and very transformative. But language features in it too. And there's yeah. key words you've picked, you know? Tell us a bit about it. Well, I, I probably, you know, I could tell you more about what I don't know about language than what I do know about indigenous language. Yeah. Um, I'm from, uh, from Victoria, um, a place that was, uh, you know, decimated within, you know, months and years of uh, colonial settlement. Um, so my experience with indigenous language has mainly to do with name places, name places in Victoria. 
Um, if you go through Victoria, every second township is, is named after, you know, a um, by an Indigenous language. So places like uh, Yakadanda, Yaroa, uh, which means joyful and tonarong, uh, Pot Potpot, Gurum <laughs> um, Gurum Gong, um, Benalla, which is Benwala, which means big watering hole. It's uh, the Waiwaru language. Um, but those those languages and those um, those place names really now only exist on those rusty signs that you see as you drive into mm. townships. Um, out of the 35 language groups in um, Victoria, um, only two remain or are being reclaimed as we speak mm -hmm. through wonderful work of organisations like the Victorian Aboriginal Languages Corporation. Um, so yeah, with 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 the essay, it sort of dawned on me how much I didn't know. Mm -hmm. You know, I only found out um, a few years ago that the place I grew up in Yarrow was um, Tunnerong for joyful. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's pretty much all we have left of of that language. And language certainly wasn't spoken by um, anyone in my community as I was growing up. And so that in itself tells you a history. Yeah, totally. And look, I purposely came with a Canadian T-shirt this morning, Canada 150, to make a little bit of a political point. Yeah. That 150 seems like a long time if you're talking about one form of state. Yeah. It doesn't say, you know, Inuit 27,000 <laughs> or Cree 35,000. You see the point? Yeah. So I'm saying language and time spent speaking it is always there. And, in, you know, as I grew up, it was really about bilingualism as in French and English, as if the others didn't exist. You know, and yet there are all these major languages and nations side by side for eons, right? And I really feel the same thing about Australia that, you know, this sense of 250, 350, whatever the number, those languages are still extant in the lived experiences of people and also in their art. It's also the, the, the language of reading the, being able to read the landscape, that's a language in itself as well. I think a classic example of how quickly that was, um, I guess, eradicated in Victoria, is you think about, uh, you know, the, the, the Ned Kelly saga and, you know, the, the famous outlaw or cop killer, whichever way you want to put it. Um, he was being hunted down by state troopers and they needed extra assistance. Mm -hmm. And so they brought in some um, Aboriginal black trackers from Queensland, mm -hmm. which obviously means that there were actually no Tunnerong people left by 1878 to actually assist them with their, on their country, country that they would know better than anyone else, to try and catch Ned Kelly. Yeah. And that's within 20 years of first contact. Yeah. So amazingly, think of this world dimension too. Like recently, you might have seen a documentary on ABC about this, but that, that some of the Yakanjanjara people were invited to show South African savannah dwellers how to do fire stick farming. Right? So people went and showed caring for country in South Africa, Australian way, and I, what I mean is indigenous Australian way, and it was absolutely 21st century, the best possible knowledge someone could have obtained. Right? And that is another way of speaking about the language of country, you know, preserving it worldwide, not just in one place. Yeah. And it moves, it migrates, fascinating stuff. So have a look and just see, you know, that the, the export of knowledge of that sort from one indigenous group to another is incredibly powerful too.
don't know, Samia, if you know, observed that kind of thing in the, the various countries you've worked in too, that the, you know, contact with indigenous people in Australia, say from people from South Asia, how important that's been. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that you get traces of in Aboriginal languages right up the top of the northern coast is the very, very, very long history of exchange of ideas. And exchange of ideas doesn't just mean exchange of words and, you know, names for food or things like that. They're deep, sophisticated, philosophical systems of being and living and economically organising. And those, yeah, the the kind of cosmopolitanism that you can actually start being able to see when you pay close attention to languages. And one of the things I love about Australian Aboriginal history or Australian Aboriginal linguistic history is that notion of you speak in the country, the language that is of that country, the, the way that you see the the Aboriginal language archives move, change languages, like certain stories are told in 15 different languages depending on where the story is t- being told, where the story is travelling through. And I think that kind of cosmopolitanism is the key to how you imagine a different world, yep, you know, yep. how you actually imagine encountering other people in a respectful way. Yeah, it's really integrative too. And so, Patrick, if we come to, come to you, I mean, you've, Lived in other nations, other island nations. You're back in this in this country now, but of course from elsewhere. Tell us how this relates to you know your work with you know tectonic plates and geoscience. How, what's what's the language dimension? Oh my goodness, that, that, that's a huge question. It is. Is this microphone on? Um, I'm <laughs> going to turn it on if it's not. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things that I'm very interested in is how to get global messages across to people who don't speak English or French as, as their first language. And I suppose when I first went to the Pacific just over 30 years ago, um, it, I was I was amazed, like lots of foreigners are when they still go to the Pacific, that you can't communicate effectively in languages like English. I mean, uh, surely everyone speaks English, surely everyone understands that, you know, to adapt to climate change, you should, you know, read certain books and follow certain rules, and they all happen to be written in English rather than in Itauke Bauen or something like that. Um, and I, I suppose the, the message that I was getting very clearly was that in order to communicate effectively with people whose preferred language and worldview is not the same as yours, you have to acknowledge their language and you have to acknowledge their worldview. It's simply not enough to do this sort of neo-colonial style, oh, well, look, I'm, uh, I'm English and I'm a very well-qualified scientist and, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you now what you need to do to, um, you know, preserve your livelihoods into the foreseeable future. It doesn't work. Um, you know, um, people will nod very politely, of course, and, uh, and then they'll go off and they'll say, well, why is God doing this to us, you know? And, <laughs> well, what, you know, and they'll talk in their own language and, and, and look, it's, it's an advantage and it's a huge disadvantage, actually, speaking Fijian, because then you understand how rude people can be um, about, about foreigners and about the, you know, the, the preoccupations of foreigners and the prejudices of foreigners and things like that. Um, you know, and people are very polite to your face, of course, but then behind your back, they, they will talk about things that, uh, um, that you might find quite offensive. So I, look, look, the bottom line here, Adam, I don't want to talk too much. Um, but the bottom line here is that I think language is hugely important in terms of communicating global imperatives, yeah. particularly around climate change, but particularly also around natural disaster, earthquake yeah. risk, volcano risk, yeah. and things like that. Um, yes. and, and I think we need to acknowledge that. Well, look, I, it was mentioned earlier, and Daniel picked it up. 
as well, that signage and road signage is so incompetent in many ways, even in the current world. I mean, I'll just give you an example in the Northern Rivers. This is the most active floodplain in Australia outside the tropics. And yet all the signs are the same as you might see anywhere else. And it just said things, things like this. Roads subject to flooding, indicators show depth, right? It's almost like, let's look forward to seeing the indicators kind of thing, not if you drive through this road, you will die. You know, they, in the, the, the whole question, and I'm exaggerating for emphasis, but you get the picture, signage, and it's certainly not bilingual, it's only in English, and it's really bad English too. It's a kind of attenuated, crazy English. So I gave, I, it gave me great pride to go back to Canada and see the, the Mohawk country in Mohawk language and with its own symbol on the sign, right? A visual symbol, the language of the people, owned where it was, we've got a long way to go, and actually in our university we want to do one of those things as our, a whole language, not reclamation project, but you know, policy for roads project so people see something different when they travel throughout the country. Interesting idea. So, we had a talk yesterday about signage in France as well. It has its own style. Anyone who watches the Tour de France would see. You know, incredibly proud, incredibly real, but is it re recognizing minorities very much? I don't know. What's your impression having lived there for many years? Um, it's funny. In uh, Corsica, there's a lot of... Uh, um, Na the um, traditional Corsicans, there's a lot of tension between languages there. And I'm right in Brittany where, where I live and um, the Bretagne language is very, they're very proud of their language. There are yeah. um, regional issues with language in, in France, but I don't want to talk about France. Yeah. It's boring. That's okay. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I just want to talk about me coming at Please. language actually because I'm a bit different um, that I came at it as a as a novelist, but also as a person who um, watched my family struggle, especially my father and his siblings, um, having been removed from their country and growing up in boys and girls' homes and removed from their mother tongue. And so my um, the, the book that I've just written is actually has if no one, if anyone knows, it has a dictionary that flows through the entire text and it's told through a dictionary, which sounds completely boring to some people. Um, but hopefully it's n not so bad. <laughs> that, looks, that looks boring. <laughs> it's not boring. So I did this as, um, as a gift to my father, actually. I wrote the book. But also I wanted to write a book that was a gift to my daughter. I wanted to, it to be a novel that was actually an act of continuing culture and um, and reclaiming a language. I sourced, um, I did rely on the on the revitalization work from Dr. Uncle Stan Grant Senior and a linguist, Dr. John Rudder, who's actually worked with um, the Yorta Yorta language as well and a Yongul in the north. Yeah. Um, and inc there's incredible linguists and mm. they should really be here talking about this subject, don't you think, um, that are working with Indigenous languages and preserving those languages and we really do need to do... This is a really important work, not just because it's the UN year of um, international Indigenous languages, because mm. culture is embedded in those languages and when the door 
closes on those languages, when they're lost, the door literally slams shut on an entire culture, on an entire history and, and the soul of, of that country where, where it exists, um, which is a, an utter tragedy to our, all of our national identities. Um, we have to, I think when we're truth-telling, and that's part of NAIDOC theme this year, was voice treaty truth. When we're actually truth-telling, we need to recognise and, and hear the, the truth that there was a, a, a total suppression and an attempted extinction of the Indigenous languages. You know, the bullet was the means of the physical subjugation, but language was the means of the spiritual subjugation. Um, I'm sure this was... I'm, I don't know about language activism in, in Bangladesh, Sami, and I'd love to know more I'm, I'm, if you wanted to talk about it. But, um, yes, is that my rant over? Sorry, I could... Look, I think we... I think we, just to back sorry. that up, first of all... I don't think the word rant is in that dictionary. <laughs> no. But seriously, that's incredibly pertinent to the topic, I, I believe. Um, and in terms of me rediscovering this language for my family and for my country, mm. um, just in terms of how, how a, a language holds culture, I'll just give an example, if you like, yeah. and then yeah. won't hog anymore. Um, Songlines are fascinating because songlines are actually in an intact language. They will tell the story of the landscape. This is, might be interesting for you, Patrick. They'll tell the hundreds and hundreds of um, actual maps of a landscape that the speaker may never even visit. And that is so incredible because it's actually a history of the landscape before change and before this ecological disastrous era that we're in. And there's also, uh, there's, in terms of holding culture, there's, there's words in a language that are untranslatable and unable to be expressed in English. Mm -hmm. And there's words that I came across in the Wiradjuri language like the word nyaran, which means weak and hungry and depressed all in one concept mm -hmm. and if anyone has had dark days here or suffered with depression that's for me that sums it up weak and hungry and depressed and it might not be hunger for mm -hmm. the satiation of of a food it's mm -hmm. that emptiness that that hollowness that can't be filled and mm -hmm. other words like yinyamara which means not just respect but it means gentleness kindness and respect at once there's it's just when you yeah i really hope you all discover the languages of the land you live on because it's essential to understanding our history who we are as a people our nation who our children can be when they grow up and um and understanding yeah the landscape of where you are unlocking thank you so yeah. much yeah that's great anyway sorry i mean look did you want to comment to me on that issue, yeah, yeah, or Daniel? Yeah, a, a couple ahead. of things along that line. I think, um, first of all, I mean, imagine within the space of five years going speaking your language and then being transported to a mission where speaking your language then becomes a rebellious act yeah. mm -hmm. and you have to speak it in hushed tones and then you are dressed in European clothing and then you are taught English the correct way. Um, uh, that has obviously, a you know... A, uh, and a massive impact on, on culture and, and on language and how that's um, 
uh, used within the community. Um, but also to connect that um, idea of the of the song lines and the and the road signs. Mm. Um, a lot of our major freeways and highways in Australia are actually on the roots of those old song lines, yeah. and so those long, meaningful, culturally significant song lines now have been replaced by that rusty signage that means nothing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a metaphor for the way Australia has treated its first peoples and its and the first peoples language and let alone what's traveling on the top of yeah those highways you know it's not people but machines in you know with people but you know it's changed the whole dynamic of everything and that's that's a big part so Samir, did you want to comment at all? yeah i just wanted to thank you so much for raising that tara about language being the site where the death happens in the psychic and spiritual sense because um, so in my case what happened was we moved to Australia when I was seven um, and I was the person in the family who was policing where my parents were speaking Bengali because you know you're always as 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 diasporic kids you're always far more assimilated than your parents mm-hmm. and you end up being the person who's saying shush mum you can't say that on the train mum speak English blah 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 and you know like obviously extremely hurtful for your parents when you and you don't realize because you think you're caring for them because you're saving them from the racism of a very monolingual country yeah but what happened was, you know, then I was studying history um, at the University of Sydney and studying something completely else. And I got very fascinated by those little mosques that are throughout Australia. Yeah. And I saw that in one of these mosques, there was an old Quran. And I thought, oh, and it was in Broken Hill. And I thought, oh, if I go look at that, I'll know where these mosques were from, who built them, etc. And I turned up looked for this giant Quran and it's, you know, it's giant, giant, giant book. Someone in English has written the Holy Quran and I opened it up and it wasn't the Quran. It was a 500-page book of Sufi poetry in Bengali. Right? (laughs) 500 pages. (laughs) In the middle of Australia. And it was published in 1893, but the book itself was translated from Persian into Bengali and, you know, in 1861. So my language came and found me. It's not like I found that book. That book found me. And, you know, I spent years thinking how on earth did this thing get here because it's Sufi poetry is complicated sophisticated stuff and of course I found all the camel lines that had actually gone over all the old song lines right and in many cases colonized the routes that Aboriginal people had long been traveling so then of course as soon as I started digging into it I found that if you want to know the history of these people, you have to talk to Aboriginal communities because they're the ones who took many of these people in. They married people. They kept the histories alive in many Aboriginal families is where the South Asians' histories are. There are still people singing songs in Urdu. And like if you go along the, the camel lines in Australia, you find the most amazing stuff. And it's just been like slowly learning to read that book again was like becoming alive again, was like becoming, you know, like sort of watering this plant inside you, that this thing that was dying. And, you know, about eight years after I started doing this search, so Australia Nama, my book, kind of took shape. It's essentially a history of Australia 
written through non-English language sources. What happens yeah. if you tell the history of this place, foregrounding Aboriginal languages, foregrounding South Asian languages or Arabi or, or Arabic or Persian? Like, well, it, it, so it's it's an attempt to try and touch that psychic thing that's continuously being destroyed yeah. in contemporary Australia. Wow. That is such a discovery yeah. and an ongoing one, right? It's such an ongoing one. And it's such an invitation to go on country, caring for country, and with that respectful approach to realize it's much more international or global than one might think, you yeah. know, at every little step of the way. Have you discovered this sort of thing too, Patrick, in your work, I mean, in the Pacific, that it's not just people speaking their own language, they're speaking other people's as well, and it's also the language of ocean sea level rises and their own risk yes yes i mean in the country like fiji you've got about 14 15 languages that are that are spoken and there's a lot of crossover between them but i want to make a, a another yeah. point yes. sort of leading on from what everyone is saying that's that the, the loss of language is also the loss of knowledge and this is really the essence of my book on the edge of memory yeah. um that that, uh, that i'm here because of um uh, the the amount of information that is stored orally in people's heads, particularly, you know, in the past, um, compared to what has been written down, is is huge. Um, and uh, and what the the book is talking about is actually we can demonstrate how old some of these memories are. Um, and I've looked particularly at uh, what I call coastal drowning stories in uh, around Australia. Um, we've now got stories from around about twenty three locations all the way around the Australian coast. Wow. Groups of stories with uh, Nick Reed from the University of New England, who's sitting over there. But groups of stories that recall a time when the ocean level was lower, the shorelines were further out to sea. What are now islands were contiguous with the mainland, um, and then how the sea progressively uh, rose over the land. Now, sea level after the last ice age reached its present level around Australia about 7,000 years ago. So these stories must, by default, be at least 7,000 years old, mm -hmm. passed down orally across 300, 400 generations. Um, and as soon as the language uh, is lost, if these stories are not written down, as soon as the language is lost, um, as Nick knows very well, um, that knowledge is lost. So I think there are really pragmatic imperatives for preserving indigenous languages wherever you are in the world. And one of those imperatives is about the body of knowledge that is known only in those languages. Yeah, It's incredible, isn't it? If you just pause for a second in silence and think about that power, even just within 100 kilometers of this stage and near Springbrook, you can find Antarctic beech trees, Latin derivation, notophagus, indigenous names, many, right? And referring to what's called the Gondwana era, indigenous names, many. But how do we tell that story best? By respecting first peoples, not just Latin. Like it's a really interesting question how Latin has been used for botany and zoology and places like that all over the world. And yet the first people's name for the very thing is forgotten, okay? So we have this theory hmm, where I work during the day and at Southern Cross that this is part of caring for a country is to rediscover and reanimate all of that, not just the nomenclature, but the knowledge in terms of the environment, indigenous knowledge, the knowledge of sea and land, because after all, caring for a country is also water and air and spirit. And it could apply across the board in almost every discipline in a modern university. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a challenge. Mm -hmm. We probably won't 
succeed in everything, but it's, that's what you try. And I mean, all of you have either done or worked with in these kind of higher education aspects, things where you're pushing the boundaries in a new way. Daniel's doing that in your story. You're doing it clearly in what you've written here in this. And I think your fiction does it too. I really think it does. And you know how you said before, oh, you know, that glossary or that dictionary is probably the least interesting. I find it one of the most fascinating parts of the whole approach in your latest novel. The way that the language, it's not like you're flipping back and forth. It's like this deep sense of that's what the place really stands for. That really matters, you know? And I would think that a writer isn't just going to be uh, thrilled by that response, but I would imagine it's a pretty encouraging one, you know, for, for readers to come back and tell you that they've learned something deep from the book as well as been moved by it. Do, what, do people come up and tell you? Yeah, they things? do. It's yeah. really nice. Yeah, it really is re <laughs> affirming, right? Yeah, lots of course, of because I'm so interested in um, reading nonfiction. So I did one, write a like, factional book. Yeah. And also I wanted it to work on different layers, so work as a language tool but also work as a guide, a sort of handbook for claiming native title or yeah. and a novel as well with a plot and, yeah. It's all there, yeah. I'm interested Please. in asking Sammy a question about yep. oh. um, language activism in Bangladesh. I'd like to know more if you wouldn't, because you, you're talking about indigenous languages of Bangladesh. Sure. So basically... When the British left uh, South Asia, it was partitioned into um, India and Pakistan and Pakistan was on two sides of India. So there was West Pakistan and East Pakistan and the state language was Urdu, um, which is, um, you know, one of the major languages in West Pakistan. But in East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, basically the majority of people speak Bengali and there's also a number of languages in the hill regions which are quote-unquote, indigenous languages. Mm. And so what happened was the state language was a means of the West Pakistani state doing uh, kind of enacting a very brutal military regime. So they tried to say that, you know, you can't, you people can't be speaking Bengali or any other languages apart from Urdu because it's not Muslim enough. Like there was a, that was, so that was in the 1950s, 1960s. So what happened was I have this very out there intense grandmother <laughs> and, and we so, all yeah, they're good ones yeah. so in in the 1950s the west pakistani state banned a whole range of different types of songs and they banned the poetry of nozrul uh, islam they banned the poetry of Rabindranath tagore and indian classical hindustani singing which is in braj pasha because they were that this is too hindu for the state of pakistan so then what my grandmother and her lover at the time did was they <laughs> they set up a school teaching the banned things right <laughs> during that military oh, regime and so they became kind of a backbone of the language movement that was part of in the end what how Bangladesh became an independent country it's a very simplistic mm. story I've told there because in many ways today, Bengali is the hegemonic language now and whether or not it's treating other languages well. But it's got a – so if it, I think a few years ago, the um, establishment of um, Mother Tongue Day came from Bangladesh because it's one of those places that's understood to have actually hit the streets and fought for a language historically. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> I, I, this idea of – the banned language being taught by out there radical grandmothers is really something attractive in but, my world. But wouldn't you want to go to a school and just learn about Radhanath Tagore and yeah, yeah, that's right. 
That would be beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the <coughs> it, what what I didn't realize when I started running after this Bangla book in the middle of the Australian desert was I was picking up all that history. I didn't mm. I didn't actually know that that's where what my family history was and that's what they'd gone through and and it was just so but you know again the the thing about languages and it, I, I can't I can't think of an English word better than magical is the way that stories in other languages have completely different logics right they have completely different logics that in English we're not used to thinking or accepting as true and other languages draw you in to be able to inhabit those logics. So, yeah. you know, after eight or so years of chasing after this one Sufi text, I learned to read Bangla and then one day picked up my great-grandfather's <coughs> memoirs and was just flicking through. I was like, oh, goodness, I can actually read Bangla now. And there's an account in my great-grandfather's memoirs of his father singing, reading out that same book that I found in Broken wow. Hill. <laughs> oh, wow. <coughs> and, singing. you know, yeah, well, it's the text is such a complex one. Like it's yeah. a Sufi text and you don't sit there reading it quietly. You sing it to people, you know. Yeah. You perform it for large audiences rather like this one. If I could, if I could sing the Puthi now, it would be amazing, but it's a 19th century text and I can't. <laughs> and so it was, you know, it's moments like that you realise, wow, this – book this set of stories has its own logic and I've just been scripted into it and it's like it's an alive thing it's wow. alive Absolutely. it's not like it's alive it is alive, it is alive. I think that's yeah. what you're saying it is alive and I am absolutely so in awe of the Auslan interpreters doing this for us because yeah, can you imagine yeah. thank, you. thank you I'm so in awe thank you to you as well it is like, you know, when you look at, if you go to federal prominent, look at the Hansard reporters and how fast they're working and how hard, and there's like one waiting to take the place of the other when they sort of jump in. You know, that's kind of the level of professionalism we're seeing. And if you had been singing your 19th century text, it would have been bloody hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think. <laughs> but worth it. We'll plan for next year, shall we? You know, sort of a bit of practicing in advance. That would be good. We can manage this thing. We can do this thing. Only Byron could do it. <laughs> Only Byron could do it. So, so Daniel, can you? Uh, is this inspiring? Could, you know, when you're talking about singing, it must get you going thinking about this. Well, I was, <laughs> I was re reflecting, and I'm not going to sing. <laughs> um, I was reflecting on um, uh, journals of our forebears, and um, my dad was a. Um, uh, he kept a journal, and when he passed away, he said, "Look." Um, have a read, have a look. You might want to not look at this section, you know. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> may have had a falling out at that time. Just skip between, you know, 2013 January to 2013 uh, March or whatever. Um, but this is the kind of journal writer he was. So um, yeah. I opened it up to one day, um, September, you know, perhaps 2012, something like that. And the journal read, um, Osama bin Laden dead, bought a drying machine. <laughs> didn't really leave me much to go on <clears throat> so just you repeat know, that again just repeat those two again Osama bin Laden dead full stop yeah full stop all in capitals bought um, bought a drying machine great yeah. a drying machine so, like uh, a dryer like a clothes dryer tell me how I'll get culture out of that yeah <laughs> rooted Can't. I think there's a bit of speechlessness on the, amongst the panel but you get the idea. It's absolutely 
the contrapuntal nature of these things, sometimes people put them together in all new ways. Yeah. I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> From anyone. You know, which is great. That's it's why we come something, to It's something he could have only written. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's that. Yeah, exactly. Hey, look, I mean, I've, we, we do have these great things when you discover something, or actually when you discover it's just a revelation, it's already there, you know. But I've seen manuscripts, for example, of the, the, uh, the late great David Unipon that exist in the State Library of New South Wales. Some of you may see it's a UNESCO cultural treasure that's being nominated at the moment. And what he does in the manuscript, which is all copper plate longhand, is he draws pictures and songs in the margins. There's a whole session probably on marginalia. I think that's a very bad term for what is absolutely core because that's not doodles. It's actually what's in someone's brain at the time. So you see a picture of a fish trap at the time when you're talking about the story of the fish trap. Like it's imaged in that way and that's not published often in that way, right? You'll just have the text and not the image. Just like we often have the text and not the song. You know, mm -hmm. so it actually raises the question about these different forms. And, you know, we, we love novels, but gosh, there's a lot missing. Hence, the online versions of, say, you know, say the audible versions, not to, to create a certain name of a company, but do you know what I'm saying? That those speaking books are becoming more and more heard and listened to, not just because people have to, because they want to. I think it's part of the reason. You know, hearing to this, what do you think? I, and could I just make the point yeah. that the, the finest or the most complete oral traditions are ones that are spoken, they're also sung, they're, they're also performed, yeah. and they're also supplemented by rock art. And one of the points that I make in my book is that it seems to me that what today we refer to as art, particularly indigenous yeah. art, has its roots in pragmatism rather than in aesthetics. Yeah. So that, you know, people didn't draw rock art for pleasure 5,000 years ago. They drew it as, a, as an aid memoir for the oral stories uh, that they, they wanted to tell to their descendants. Um, yeah. So I think that we are, we are missing sometimes, exactly like you say, you know, yeah. the, the wholeness of, of what is uh, knowledge passed down in the absence mm. of literacy. Correct. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. And we are so privileged to have that door opened in different forms, but to imagine how many more rooms there are in that house, you know, or tent, as it may be, which is without walls. And I think that's why this image here in this festival is particularly apt. So given that, traveling forward, I mean, you're going to be going to London and professing this in a really interesting cosmopolitan environment there. People are changing and moving and, and, and all of this is happening. If we had to advocate something, say, as, you know, to government, you know, to change, have you thought about this in a kind of pragmatic way, how we could actually advocate change rather than just saying what hasn't happened? Is there something that's at the top of your list of what could happen that would be an improvement? I think um, if we spent $500 million in setting up uh, an Indigenous museum um, instead of spending $500 million on the War Memorial, I think <laughs> that would be a good start. There you go. Vote one. Can we have $500 million just to each person has $500 million <laughs> as a budget? That would be a what? better start. Yeah. <laughs> For a purpose. Not a new yeah. start. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, Smith, did you have a view on this? Yeah, so, you know, as a professional historian and now I'm an academic, I'm deeply invested in our universities. So what I think needs to happen to do proper change in this country 
is to get everybody thinking about knowledge mm. in a very different way. When the foundation stone of the Sydney of University of Sydney was laid, when the University of Melbourne foundation stone was laid, yeah. two oldest in Australia, the it was an assertion of the superiority of white knowledges over colonized people's knowledges, right? That fundamental assumption and fact still underpins how we imagine knowledge production and how knowledge is even produced, even when we're doing social justice projects, mm -hmm. even when we're advocating for change, that idea that European white knowledges mm -hmm. are better, superior to, more true than colonised people's intellectual knowledge systems, that has to change. And so mm -hmm. I see my role yeah. as mm -hmm. part of that. <coughs> yeah. It, it would be interesting to know how much um, knowledge could have been derived from the sandstone itself. That's true. The stone itself was probably more interesting than, that, than what was chiseled on it, <laughs> in a weird way. You know, if you think about the history. And I remember once going at uh, Monash, where I used to work, uh, they had a, a museum in geology, right? I didn't know there was a geology museum. There was. It was quite interesting. And they said, these are all of the shards of minerals, pieces, that no longer exist in nature. They're gone from Australia, right? Just like species. I had never thought of that, you know, that you could have a whole slew of things which we'd mined out of existence. And because mining is always thought of as being that which gets rid of things, it certainly does. And there was this museum and only, only one place, and I said, how do we make that accessible and that knowledge accessible and the stories that it tells? Fascinating. Because you've, you've worked in a lot of areas like this too. Yes, and yeah. I, the, the point that I would make following on from, from the two on my left um, is that um, oral... Uh, oral stories need to be preserved. And it's not simply a question of, um, you know, indigenous versus non-indigenous in particular places. To me, oral knowledge is humanity's um, history. Uh, and we shouldn't be thinking about, um, you know, the traditional knowledge in Fiji or the traditional knowledge in Solomon Islands or traditional knowledge in Arnhem Land. We should be thinking about humanity's traditional knowledge. And you're absolutely right. What What is needed is money to document as much of this traditional knowledge as we can before the knowledge holders um, die, um, to put it bluntly. Um, and what I see throughout the Pacific Islands at the moment is I see older people bemoaning the fact that their children and their grandchildren are not interested anymore in the ancient stories. They're not interested in the stories that have been passed down across tens or even hundreds of generations because they, they are on their, their phones and they are, they are now linked to a world of global knowledge that is not localized, it's not relevant, and it's not in their indigenous uh, languages. So I, I do think that there needs to be some efforts directed towards the conservation of oral knowledges before it all disappears because it's our history, not mm. just one specific group's history. Yeah, wow. wow. <laughs> we, promised, we promised you a session that would um, expand kind of concepts. And I think, can I, I know it's a, two minutes early, but I just feel it's the moment to say thank you to all the panel for a wonderful session. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.